This message is brought to you by Cornerstone Gospel Church in Frankston, Australia. Uh, as it says, unlocking biblical truths about spirituality, and we've been looking at the law and the law of love, and this is our third part. So if you are open in Romans chapter 13, Romans 13, beginning at verse 8, a wonderful passage for us. Owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear uh, false witness, you shall not covet, and if there is any other commandment. So he's not highlighting all of the commandments, he's just going through a few that really deal with heart issues. And if there is any other commandment, are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. And we talked about or we've mentioned the two directions of the commandments of the law of God And that is the vertical direction, our love for God, and the horizontal direction, our love for our neighbour. So, the quick spin through a summary so far. True spirituality stems from the internal change of the heart and can only be regulated by the inner working of the Holy Spirit in the believer's life. That's where true spirituality takes place and that's where true spirituality, true Christianity Uh, forms its true workings, is in that area. True spirituality is not autonomy. It's not self-rule. This is the, the great contradiction of the Christian life, that freedom is found from within the restraint of Scripture, that Scripture puts boundaries on our lives, but within those boundaries is a true sense of freedom, the great contradiction to the world now which is unto thyself be true that is the way the world thinks in this day and age that just be true to yourself baby girl you know all these kinds of things that that every celebrity wants to say as their as their mantra uh, in life true spirituality is regulated by the law of love to love the lord your god with all your heart mind soul and strength to love your neighbor as yourself. We can identify our heart's desires in two ways then. And I've just mentioned the two ways. Does my desire show love for God and does my desire show love to mankind? Many times people have justified terrible terrible behaviours towards others in various different prejudices, etc., by Uh, by reconciling it with this. They're saying, well, I'm loving God. That's why I'm so judgmental of you. You know, (laughs) or I'm I'm truly loving God. And so this is why I'm discriminating against this group of people. And you might think, what are you talking about? Well, you think sometimes about maybe how your heart sees people who are trapped in the cult of Islam. That many times Christians in this day and age speak hatefully and spitefully about different people. Muslims. But we're called to love our neighbour and when asked who is my neighbour, Jesus said any person in need. And so it doesn't matter uh, where that stretches to. 
And so, you know, it becomes a challenge to us. And then finally, that contentment is aided in the Christian life by learning to give thanks. Always, in all things. If you remember, that Paul says, giving thanks always in all, in, in all things. And so, you know, we did the theological review of that and discovered that always, in all things, means all the time, in everything. It's very complex. So, that's where we finished last week. We want to talk about this idea of, of contentment and this understanding of giving thanks. Turn to Philippians chapter 4. Giving thanks is a more difficult issue than we often want to believe it to be. Take some time to study Philippians chapter 4 and we'll be focusing on verses uh, 10 to 13. Paul says, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at last your care for me has flourished again, though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased. That means I know how to exist with little or to be brought low is the meaning of it. And I know how to abound, uh, to enjoy you know, wealth and riches. Everywhere and in all things, I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And Ephesians 5 verse 20, same author, writing more about this subject, he says, giving thanks always for all things. To God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. And, you know, as I think about this, I think about Paul going to Jerusalem and he's feeling compelled and driven by the Spirit of God to go to Jerusalem. And along the way, the church, members of the church at two different locations receive a word and uh, a word from God that when Paul gets to Jerusalem, he's going to be imprisoned. And one of them, in one of the situations, uh, Agabus takes his belt and binds, binds Paul up with it. And he says, this is what they're going to do to you. This is what God has shown me. And so then the church says, don't go, Paul, don't go, because they're going to imprison you. And they're urging him not to go, even with tears. And Paul is saying that he's ready to go because uh, he, he understood this idea that no matter what, he, he's feeling this compulsion and direction from God to go to Jerusalem. And no matter, no matter what happens, he will serve the Lord in the circumstances he goes into. And so here is a man who can write about giving thanks always in all things because that is the way he approached the Christian life. Always and all things in these terms are inclusive of both positive and negative experiences of life. And, uh, you know, I was, I'm just reminded even of the news that Sylvie and Di give us, uh, gave us recently. And, uh, you know, that Di has been diagnosed with his cancer. Um, I didn't understand half of the terms that he used in the email uh, describing the cancer. 
But it is a malignant form of cancer, but one that's isolated, not spreading, I believe. But it is uh, at, a, at an advanced stage, and we're rejoicing in the Lord. We're good in spirit, he said, and, uh, and just enjoying serving the Lord. And so, you know, praise God, because that is, that, that is people living out Paul's injunction to rejoice in God because it allows us to find contentment in that situation. Some have taught that we only need to be thankful in everything that um, uh, that um, you know that that we can be thankful to the Lord for His salvation in the midst of the trial. So we kind of separate the trial from our salvation and we go, oh, I'm going through this terrible trial, but thank you, Lord, you've saved me. You know, as if the trial that we're going through is somehow not really a valid part of our Christian walk. It's just a terrible experience that we are going through at the time. And so instead, I'll focus on thanking God for my salvation. Paul says, thank God always for all things. Are you going through a trial? Thank God for that trial. What have you got to learn out of that? There is probably much that we can learn out of that or any other situation in life. Now, unthankful hearts are often at the core of sin in our lives. Now, that that might seem a harsh statement. I didn't use... Um, too many generalisms, I don't think. I didn't say that it's always at the core or anything like that because that would be untrue. But many times when we become unthankful, it allows us to justify a position in our lives or an attitude in our lives that will lead to sinful behaviour. Philippians 4, uh, sorry, Philippians 4, 4 to 6. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again I say rejoice. And again I say rejoice. So rejoice in the Lord when? Always. Always. And again I say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. It's interesting that he ties rejoicing into being gentle because, you know, we're, we're coming into an aggressive age. You know, we're in an aggressive age now. And there is uh, the, this aggression, like in history, we looked at ladies as being the traditionally the softer and the gentler people in society, but there is a rabid form of feminism that's at work these days that is extremely aggressive, violently aggressive. The Lord is at hand. That might be a good reason to rejoice in the Lord. Always. And again I say, rejoice. rejoice. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Be anxious for nothing but in everything, with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. So thanksgiving in everything. Again, Paul saying over and over, again and again, all of the situations in your life, you can thank God both in and for. Let your request be made known to God. And this 
I've shared with you before, this passage was a fantastic comfort to me as a young believer uh, struggling with anxiety over different issues and I came across this verse uh, doing a little bit of Bible roulette. I was just a young believer. I came across this verse in, a, I think it was an NIV, the nominally incorrect version. And um, uh, as I was reading that, I came to, saw this, don't worry about anything, I think it says in that. Don't worry about anything, but in everything, with thanksgiving. Oh, in everything, uh, uh, not quite sure, can't quite remember the, the wording, but in everything with prayer and supplication, Bring your thanks to God. Something like that, it says. And it was a real challenge to me, and it taught me right there and then. And so I was able to say to God, Lord, this situation I'm worrying about is in your control. And I was able to give it to him, and and I'm telling you, instantly that anxiety uh, went away over that situation. Colossians 2. Uh, You could look through there, verses 6 and 7. Uh, Colossians 3 verse 15, Colossians 4 verse 2, work through those as well, um, all speaking of the abounding and entire scope of thanksgiving. That, that thanksgiving is to be part of our inclusive life. You know, Start your prayers off in the morning thanking God. Think about all the things you can thank Him for, the positive, but think about all of the negative situations and thank Him for that as well. You have things to learn in those. I know I do. Now, I mentioned before that often sin is accompanied by an unthankful heart and Paul definitely talks about that in Romans 1 and I know he's talking of a particular group of people but he says because they, although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God nor were thankful but became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. It's such an amazing link that Paul makes between these unthankful hearts and this darkening of the mind, the heart, uh, which, which leads on to sinful behaviours. Two things that stand out in the hearts of those people is that they suppressed the truth, uh, that they did did not glorify God even though they knew him to be God and neither were they thankful. So it's a a link between unthankfulness and sin. If you were to work your way through Genesis chapter 3, it's worth a mention that there is a distinct lack of thankfulness in Adam and Eve's hearts for all the bounty that God gave them. Everything is yours. Except that, oh, thank you, Lord. Instead, the response is, I want that. What, what are you doing holding that back from us? I want that. And then, then the outworkings of that we know to be sin. And so there is a, a, a connection between unthankfulness and sin or an absence of thankfulness. And sin, because you know it's easy to see that when somebody is uh, thankless, uh, you know that there is something absent in gratitude there. You know, and, and you notice that when you go out of your way just to help someone, and you're just doing the right thing as a Christian in helping someone, and you know that 
uh, we all feel a little bit miffed when that person that we've gone out of our way to help doesn't recognise that they're even just a, a, a gentle thank you for what you did would, would suffice in a situation like that. And, and you know that there's something at work in the heart of that person that they can't see and, and thank others for uh, a selfless effort. So, um, and so this is interesting as well as that Adam and Eve in that situation, because of their thanklessness, there's also a connection to this discontent. What was it that went on? They weren't content with everything except those, that tree. They wanted that as well. So an absence of contentment was accompanied by an absence of thankfulness. That's just an interesting observation, I think. So there are many varying worldviews in life, in the world, and um, uh, on the conception of the world, and the conception of life, on the meaning of life, and all different kinds of things. And when you have a worldview, that is literally a, a word that means how you see the world, right? And how you see the world, we're not talking about the physical world around, although that can also be affected by your internal beliefs, you know. So how you see the world. This is literally speaking of what's driving you within is how you see the world. It's your core beliefs. So consider a couple of these. One is atheism. Atheism versus theism. So a means without and theos, the, the central word of theism, and, and ism is, uh, relates to a, um, a practice of some kind, usually a re- religious practice or belief of some kind. A without theos in the middle, without godism is what that means. So it's a practice of belief that is without God or does not believe there to be a God. And so atheism uh, teaches that everything's here by random chance, uh, millions or billions of years. It's naturalistic in its approach. It's anti-supernaturalistic. In other words, it is opposed to a supernatural view or an above-nature view or, in other words, something that is outside of the natural realm being the originator. And so uh, that's, that's atheism over... Uh, you know, billions of years and everything that's in existence has come from natural causes, they like to say, and, uh, you know, they're against the notion of a supernatural being and you will see that this is... um, uh, People like Richard Dawkins became uh, self-righteously enraged through the late 90s and the early uh, 2000s and, uh, you know, he put out several books. Um, uh, What was his big one? The the God delusion, yeah, um, and he has rages in that book against uh, the existence of God, and I think he's the one who was responsible for coining the phrase that if you believe in God, you may as well believe in the flying spaghetti monster. It makes about as much sense, and uh, so they like to disparage the idea of a God by introducing nonsensical um, and, and, and mocking ideas. Uh, that that oppose God as a result. And so, you know, you're made to feel 
like you are void of any sense of IQ or intelligence because you believe in God and believing in God is on the level of IQ as someone who believes in the flying spaghetti monster. So that's kind of where atheism sort of heads to. Not all atheists are like that, um, but there's definitely in this the, the new neo-atheists, the um, modern form, are definitely very aggressive and disparaging towards forms of religion. Now, Christianity is a form of theism. Um, we would argue very strongly the only way to God, and I believe we have biblical and logical reasons for assuming that. Now, Christianity posits that the universe is deliberate. There is a, a creation, and people argue about six days, uh, all this kind of stuff. However, uh, there is a creation. It was made within a time frame, and a short time frame, and uh, everything that's in existence, everything in existence, has come because of the supernatural influence of the cause of that, and we think that the flying spaghetti monster is ridiculous as well. Um, so atheism declares the universe is impersonal, but Christianity declares that the universe is personal. Not that the universe has personality, but the universe is the deliberate creation of a personal God. Suzanne and I have been through the process of trying to work out how to get our house designed and all this kind of stuff so that it can be built. And there are things that we've put into that design that reflect our personality. They, that's the way it is. And so God's creation is reflective of his personality. And that reflects that you and I have been made, as Genesis declares, in the image and likeness of God. So we reflect attributes of the personality and the intelligence of God and that's why we feel such a connection to his creation around us which is an amazing thing you you only have to spend a short time outdoors to be in awe of the marvel and marvel at God's creation the simplest things we were talking about caterpillars today and down here this morning and Simon was telling a funny story about caterpillars when he was a kid but I was talking to him about those caterpillars that that you, you see them going along like a big clump they move along like a giant clump but what I didn't know in is why they move along like that and there's a bottom row of caterpillars moving along and the top ones are climbing over that and they get to move ahead further and then they become the bottom ones and the whole group of caterpillars is able to move to another destination at a much higher speed by following this system a little bit like a tank track and um, because the ones that are going across the top are moving a further distance faster than the ones that are on the bottom, even though they're still travelling at their own maximum speed. So, you know, this is just one of those crazy little ridiculous things about creation that you look at that and you go, God is awesome, you know. God is awesome that he would put something in these little bugs that they would do this to travel from one point to another. And get out of the way of magpies quickly. <laughs> so there are two important things to understand in order to start to understand how 
a contented heart functions. So the universe is personal. It's God's creation. And so then we say that salvation brings us into relationship with God and any moment of distrust that we have is demonstrated in a denial of that declaration. So, we as believers, we say, I've placed my trust in Jesus. But you know, and I know, that there are times in our lives where we act on our own volition in sin in that moment. Where we do things that we know are opposed to the teaching of Scripture and, and, and opposed to the Word of God. How many of you have ever done that? Right? Okay. We've done that. We're in the process of being sanctified in this life. Now, when we do that, we are living in that moment a denial of our declaration of trusting God. At that moment, because we're living to ourselves. When we trust God, we trust Him in that we love him and we love others. That's how we demonstrate that. But when we live in that moment for ourselves, we're saying, well, I love you, God, but right now I love me a lot more. When we say that we live in a supernatural universe or a universe with supernatural origins... We are saying that God is the uncaused first cause. In other words, this is the whole debate on beginnings, the origins. Where did the world come from? So if you follow um, some uh, philosophical physicists, um, I've got the name wrong, the, the degree, theoretical physicists, they... they um, say things like, in the beginning the world was squashed, the, the universe was squashed down to a very, very tiny uh, uh, cluster of atomic energy and, you know, depending which theoretical physicist, they will say that nothing existed. But they don't mean nothing as in nothing, they mean nothing existed as in it's nothing but that nothing exploded. And so, you know, you're shaking your head. But that's, I've literally heard, um, what's his name, was on Q&A one time, Jad, the theoretical physicist, to very mocking one. Um, It'll come to you in a sec, I know. Lawrence Krauss. Lawrence Krauss. And he said this, he literally said this, that, that nothing became everything. And I don't mean nothing as you understand nothing, I mean nothing from a theoretical physicist viewpoint. And, you know, so... That just doesn't make sense. If nothing doesn't mean nothing, then that is a form of insanity. It's, it's, it's that you have a presupposition and now you're trying to make it fit into your worldview. And, and so, you know, this is what's taking place. So, it gives it some kind of legitimacy because he's got a degree. And now this is the 21st century mantra, scientists say. You know, scientists say. And so therefore it must be true. So, uh, okay, so God is the uncaused first cause. In other words, God has always eternally existed. 
if he has a beginning, he has a cause. In other words, God came into being, which then prevents him from being God. So we believe that man, since the fall, has been in a spiritual warfare and we will not be spiritually content unless we engage in that battle in the way in which God intends for us to do so and that God has the right to place us in the battle where he sees fit. So we are over here and we're facing trials and difficulties. We're discouraged and we're being battered about and at that place we start to say, Why God? Which is our wrong first response. Because the, the question then becomes, that kind of question has an underlying principle there or underlying principle that that we somehow know that our situation should be better than it is. And so God has placed us in the wrong spot. We want to be over there, in that spot, where life is a bit more comfortable. You've got it right now, God. This is much better over here. And so this is part of the issue, is that we, we can only be spiritually content when we're prepared to say, yes, Lord, you, are, you have me in the right spot in life here. These difficulties I'm going through are your lesson for me, and I thank you for them. Now, where he determines best is sometimes difficulty, but contentment is a precious thing. I think in the military, this is a very powerful principle as well, that that some of the great commanders in military history have made decisions concerning their men that they know are going to be costly, that men's lives are going to be lost, but they know that it will achieve an outcome in the war. And I think of uh, the third light horse and General Chevalier and the campaign into Beersheba uh, there on horseback against the Turks who had uh, uh, light military in place, machine guns and various different things in World War One. And as the tanks had been turned around time and time again, these small, very early model tanks that the British were trying to get down into there with and they couldn't because they moved too slow and um, uh, General Chevalier decided that the horses could move a lot faster and because the old machine guns had to be manually adjusted to change the rake angle on the, of the fire that they could get under that machine gun fire quickly and that was their only chance of having a victory in this situation. And so this regiment of soldiers went into the battle there and routed the Turks in that situation. Okay, fourth light horse. All right. Well, yeah. Fantastic. The most successful cavalry charge in history. Fantastic. There you go. Thanks for that. Fourth light horse. Okay. Now, we have to ask ourselves... So, um, the point there being that, that someone in command made a decision that was going to jeopardise people's lives, but there was a greater purpose at work. And so God can place us into situations that we may puzzle with. We may be 
unsure with and we might wonder why God, but there's a difference between asking why and asking why sometimes. Sometimes we can shake our fist and say why in a, in a defiance. Other times we can say, Lord, I don't know why, but I'm thankful for what you're teaching me. So, am I betraying the declaration of my faith in Jesus is a question that we must ask ourselves. Am I gaining peace in sources that are not in his revealed will? It's not wrong to have riches, but they should not be the source of peace. In other words, if we struggle through financial insecurity and and we're robbed of peace, then our security is actually being placed in the wrong object. Our security is being placed in material possessions in that. And so we can ask ourselves, am I gaining peace in sources that are not in his revealed will? Am I resisting God's right to place me in the battle where he wills? And these will rob us of contentment in the Christian life. Okay. So, we'll skip on a little here. Giving of thanks is central. Contentment demonstrates trusting God. Don't take these notes. Well, I can put it back up on later on unless you photograph it. Contentment always allows genuine thankfulness to find real expression in the midst of even our most dire circumstances. Um, that when we're content in Christ, we're able to rejoice in the midst of that. And, and I think back to the persecution of the Christians in Turkey uh, in the early 2000s and the email that they sent to Christians in the West saying, don't pray for the persecution to stop, pray for our strength in the midst of persecution. It's a wonderful picture of someone who is content to serve Christ in the most trying of circumstances. And the inward uh, is uh, discontent and unthankfulness are not loving toward God They are coveting against God. In discontent, we're saying my circumstances aren't what they should be, God. You've got it wrong. And in unthankfulness, we're saying that as well. How can I thank you for this that you've put me in? And uh, they're coveting against God because we're wanting our situation without thankfulness. We're wanting our situation to be other than what it presently is. And so the inward always determines the outward. Always, outward actions are simply a result of what is happening inwardly. And the first test of true spirituality, to love God so as to be thankful and content in all of life. The second would be to love our neighbour as ourselves. All right, I'm going to move on, so photograph it quickly. I can leave it on afterwards, you can flick through. All right. When does desire become coveting? And, and I should have put up the Chinese word for desire. Here there's a Chinese word for desire which, um, which 
has two sections to it. The first section at the top is two trees and the bottom section is a woman. Two trees and a woman. And I won't tell you the, the way the Chinese interpret that in this modern day and age as to why that word means desire. Um, uh, you know, but it's pretty obvious to Christianity that there is some biblical roots to that word. That there were two trees they were forbidden to partake of and one or one tree but in the midst of the garden were two trees and one of those trees they were not to eat the fruit of the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil and so the Chinese word has a has a relationship to that and you can do a little bit of history research about the history of Genesis in Chinese characters and you'll be astounded now we could dance around this and, and uh, we could establish all kinds of ideas about uh, coveting. Um, evolutionary psychology, if you, if you look into that, and the reason I'm mentioning these things is because they're in a major opposition to Christianity. There's a clash, worldviews clash. And when people have worldviews on evolution, it clashes with theology at every point. And so, in evolutionary psychology, they will say that coveting and lust are survival instincts. Now, listen, listen to that again. Think about that. Coveting and lust are survival instincts. So, they're saying that that is part of our evolutionary growth. Now, I'm, I'm really... I mean, that really surprises me that anyone could say that because the problem then becomes, why do we have a justice system at all and why do you and I, if we've evolved, why do we at all feel angry when a man rapes a woman or when someone steals his neighbour's belongings? Why, do we, why are we at all upset about that? We shouldn't be if it's part of our evolutionary development. And if it's part of our evolutionary history, that should just be nature. And therefore, just like, uh, you know, a dog peeing on the ground, it should just be part of life. It's a normal thing. What, what's the problem with that? So then they reveal their contradiction, though, because they become enraged when, when someone is raped or when a house is burgled and they start web pages and, and various different things. Now, when do desires become coveting? Desires are revealed as coveting when they are envious. They may not simply be about money, position or fame. We could be, even within Christian circles, envious of another's spiritual gifts. And depending on some of the religious movements that you and I have come from, you may have seen that at work quite strongly within, uh, within churches. Um, and then the problem is, is that you see people trying to function in spiritual gifts uh, and making stuff up as they go because... They're trying to outdo somebody else, and etc., etc. Here's one way that we can know that we're coveting: when inwardly 
we are satisfied at someone else's misfortune. Well, they probably got what they deserved. Um, maybe I'm the only one who's ever thought that. You know. <laughs> so, I know your, your pure hearts would never think such a thing. Remember, the inward determines the outward. And the outward in that case would be what we're thinking there. When, somebody, when we see someone's demise and we're happy for that, that would be the outward in that expression. We've, we've rejoiced at their suffering, at their demise. That may be misappropriating being thankful for everything. <laughs> well, since the inward always determines the outward, it is impossible to keep it in forever. The heart will be revealed. That's what's going to happen. Luke 6, 43 to 45, For a good tree does not bear bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. For every tree is known by its own fruit. For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they gather grapes from a bramble bush. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good, and an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil, for out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. <coughs> Proverbs declares, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. This principle can't be overstated. What is on the inside will manifest outwardly. The progression is always from inward to outward from inward to outward, from inward to outward. That's how it goes. This is why you and I have to be careful on what we're feeding our hearts and our minds because we're affecting the inward. And I remember years ago, Christian theologians in the were, were warning society saying that if we keep teaching young people that you've come from monkeys and there's no... There's no uh, uh, moral background to your existence, then we cannot blame them as time goes by and they begin to act outrageously. And so as time has gone by, they have acted more out- outrageously. Because why? Because what's on the inside is being revealed. They're being taught that they're, they're, they're nothing, that they've come from nothing, there's no moral framework to existence, and so as a result they live without moral guidelines. Coveting demonstrates a lack of contentment in God and his purpose and a lack of love for our fellow man. All right, we're going to move on. We're getting toward the end here. Genesis 4 shows us that coveting can have tragic consequences. And you know the story of Cain and Abel, and we won't read the whole passage here, uh, but we know that uh, Abel brought an offering to the Lord and it was accepted and Cain uh, brought an offering, but it was not accepted. And then in verse 6 of Genesis 4, so the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door. Now, this next phrase is repeated out of Genesis chapter 3 when uh, 
Eve, when God brought the curse on Adam and Eve and he spoke to Eve. And the only difference here is the pronouns, as it says that sin's desire is for you, but you should rule over it. And uh, you can go back and do some study on that. It's just an interesting passage to study. Now Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. The Lord said to Cain, where is your Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the answer is yes. Um, and he said, what have you done? The voice of your bl- brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. You see, what begins in the heart quickly becomes actions of some form or another. What begins in the heart Now, your heart is not something that cannot be um, changed. You see, you you can subject your heart to wrong influences and harden your heart. You can subject your heart to good influences and soften your heart. This, this is the person who says, oh, we were in love once, but we've fallen out of love. I don't know why the word fall is always tied to love. We fell in love and we fell out of love, you know. Um, But this is a heart problem. Either one or both of those people have got heart damage and that damage is causing them not to actually love each other. What begins in the heart quickly becomes actions of some form. 1 Corinthians 10, there's uh, some passages here in 23 to 24 and chapter 13, 4 and 5. All things are lawful to me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful to me, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said it better. Love suffers long and is kind, does not envy, does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil. We are to seek the good of others, not just ourselves. And this is why Christianity is not superficial. When people say that Christianity is superficial, it's because they're looking at the way that the religion as the broad label has labelled Christianity over uh, decades or centuries and are looking at some of the forms of behaviour within Christianity uh, that justly deserve criticism. But it is not superficial to love your enemy. It is not superficial to love those who are hurting you. That's not superficial. That is something profound and deep. Christianity is not superficial. We're getting to the end. The fruits of true spirituality are revealed in how we treat others. They are vital areas of inward self-mastery. Now, I hesitate to use this term self-mastery because if you look it up, you're going to come across uh, some, some deeply new age kinds of thinking uh, in some areas. Um, uh, but self-mastery 
would be a modern term of what Paul says of bringing his body under subjection so that it doesn't take him into places where he doesn't want to go. He subjects his body. He, and the term Paul uses is that a pugilism of boxing. He's saying, I'm boxing myself. I'm, I'm in the ring with myself and I'm fighting against the drives that I have to do these things and I'm disciplining myself in this. So they're vital areas to, uh, for you and I to have self-mastery in is in how we treat one another. That's where the rub is going to be, isn't it, of most of the Christian life, is that you and I are going to come in conflict with each other. We're going to say things that, that is going to offend another person or, or vice versa. And that's where this self-mastery is going to be, or this self-discipline is going to be important. True spirituality is first lost in the inward life. Outward sinful actions then result. So when the inward life has is being neglected, it will show in the outward. That's what's going to happen. So grasp this truth. The internal is really the basic. That's the foundation of your Christian life. Getting the word of God into you, uh, as, as a friend says, uh, the Bible, get it in you. And, um, and so, you know, the internal is the basic. It's about having the heart transformed. The external is always merely the result. It's what it is. If we can understand this, this is a tremendous starting place for growth in the Christian life. True spirituality moves far beyond this. There is a positive concept that Paul teaches so powerfully. Turn to Galatians chapter 2. This is, this is a really important point for us. Galatians 2. I have been crucified with Christ. Or we might have to teach this bro in in the song service soon. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Verse 21. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. Notice that the very first statement would be, we would see that negatively in a sense. I have been crucified with Christ. And then there's a stop between them. But this is followed by a wonderful positive. I'm not living. Christ is living in me. It's no longer I that liveth, but Christ who liveth in me. And this 
Paul then says, is manifested in how I live. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I've been crucified. Now I'm not living. Christ is living in me. And the life that I'm now living, this manifestation is a manifestation of what has happened inwardly. That's what Paul is saying. Remember, this is a man who was hunting down Christians to have them murdered, to have them executed, transformed so entirely that he would be executed for the Christian faith. Why? Because his life was laid down. He was crucified with Christ and Christ began to dwell in him and this affected the way he lived outwardly. What's happening on the inside? Christ is alive in you. And that is being manifested on the outside. The life that I now live. And so if you are examining your Christian life and you know that there are areas of your Christian life that are falling short, the problem is a heart problem. It's not going to be solved by turning up at church one Sunday. That won't solve it. It won't be solved by... by an on-the-phone counselling session, that might help. Going to church might help. But the real issue is when that revelation occurs and when we respond obediently to the Lord and the internal workings are changed. Then the rest will follow. This is why when somebody falls in sin, there's, the issue is not so much about the action. The issue is about working out what the motivations were for that helping them to see the damage to their heart before the sin. That sin can have tragic consequences. It could lead to a marriage failure. It could lead to all kinds of problems. But that is the fallout of it. That's nothing compared with dealing with the heart issue that led to that sin in the first place. Because it's the, the outward will always follow the inward. And if the inward is not dealt with, that person will continue in the same or worse sins. This is the nature of true spirituality. So when every time when you see yourself battling and failing, take a look at the heart. See what's going on internally. What are you giving yourself to thinking about? What's, what is being unyielded to the Lord? What, what are you not submitting in? What's not being transformed? What, what area are you holding back from giving over to God? Because that is becoming the heart stumbling block in your life. That's the issue. And that's the area where it's going to have to be yielded and surrendered to the Lord so that then the internal change results in your life demonstrating that externally. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message. You're welcome to duplicate this message in its entirety for non-profit purposes. For more information and resources, visit cgc.org.au.